Reader, you will of course remember that this jade was a transformation of that same great stone block which once lay at the foot of Green Sickness Peak in the great Fable Mountains. A certain jesting poet has written these verses about it. Nuwa's stone smelting is a tale unfounded. On such weak fancies are great fables grounded. Lost now, alack, and gone my heavenly stone, transformed to this vile bag of flesh and bone. For in misfortune, gold no longer gleams, and bright jade, when fate frowns, lack luster seems. Heaps charnel bones none can identify, were golden girls and boys in days gone by. another exciting installation of Rereading the Stone. I'm your host, Kevin Wilson, joined as always by William Jones. Will, how's it going today? Pretty good, yeah. Yeah. It's another beautiful day. Another excellent day. Another chapter, another dream within a dream. We were talking before the show started that this is another uh, kind of iconic installation. Yeah. I thought there's a lot to work with here. We're trying to figure out uh, levels of meaning. I'm still currently wushing pilled, but I, I'm I'm searching for a remedy. For you, everything is linked. Everything is it's in cycles, and yeah, you have the you have the chalkboard with the pictures on it, and pins in the pictures, and lines drawn between them, and words and question marks. For sure, dreaming was the original memeing. That's why they rhyme. <laughs> And so there's a lot going on. This is chapter eight. So this is uh, Jia Baoyu is allowed to see the strangely mm. corresponding golden locket. And Shri Bao Chai has a predestined Chao He encounter with the magic jade. Mm. And so even even in the uh, the chapter title, we are returning to some issues we've been discussing trying to figure out in previous installations uh we're trying to figure out the the meaning yeah. of fortune coincidence fortuitous occurrences serendipity so before we dive in should we just have a quick recap of what happened last time and, and what will happen in this chapter definitely yeah so in chapter seven uh we had the the endings of granny leo uh leo lao lao's visit to the Zhongguo mansion, the where where kind of the tale is set, uh, and she's you know a poor peasant farmer who, through a, a rather distant, possibly familial connection, is kind of linked to um, the the central characters, and she's come to kind of to beg for money. Uh, anyway, she's shown around by one of the servants, who we know only as uh, Joe Ray's wife. We never learn her her actual name, 
And so Jorei, after Granny Liu leaves, goes to report to uh, Lady Wang, Wang Furen, the, the kind of one of the, the matriarchs um, of the house, to kind of, you know, tell her what's happened. And while there, Lady Wang gives her a box of 12 artificial flowers to distribute to the, the younger women of the household. And so for much of the chapter, Jorei is, uh, she's moving around within, within the house, delivering these flowers to Xuebao, not to Xuebao Chai, uh, but to um, the, the three Chun sisters, to uh, Wang Xifeng, to Lian Daiyu and others. Um, and so we kind of see the in- interior of the house through her eyes and all of these people at work or at play. And then in, in the second half, Wang Xifeng, who is essentially, you know, she's, she's the woman responsible for kind of almost managing the household, for being the kind of decision maker. She goes next door to the Ningguo mansion, which is the other branch of the same, same family, uh, to spend the day with them. And our young protagonist, Jia Baoyu, takes it upon himself to, to go with her. And while we're there, we get to meet a, a new character, a young man of about the same age as Jia Baoyu, called Qin Zhong. And he is the brother of uh, Qin Shi, who is, through marriage, something like cousin or aunt of Jia Baoyu, and in whose bedroom Jia Baoyu slept while he was having this grand dream sequence in Chapter 5. Anyway, Jia Baoyu and Qian Zhong become close friends almost immediately. And one of the things they decide in their first encounter is that they should get a, get a teacher to tutor them so that they can study together uh, and through that, I suppose, strengthen their friendship. Anyway, after a nice day at the Ningguo house, Jia Baoyu and Wang Xifeng set off for home. And while they're leaving, one of the servants of the household, an old retainer called Big Jiao, Jiao Da, who has got very drunk, uh, causes a bit of a ruckus. And when various servants and members of the family try to step in to kind of calm him down or even restrain him, he starts blurting out embarrassing secrets about the family, suggesting, among other things, that there is incest going on between various different members of the family. And then in, in, in this chapter, well, for the most part, it's about Jia Baoyu, Xue Baochai, and Lin Daiyu spending the day together. Some of the adults go off to watch a play. Jia Baoyu joins for a bit and gets bored. And so he sneaks off to, um, to hang out with Xue Baochai, who, as we found out in the previous chapter, uh, has had a kind of relapse of an existing illness that she's had for a while. Uh, so that's the reason for going to visit her. And then eventually the, the three of them get quite drunk together. Um, <laughs> Uh, and and some things kind of come out of that, um, mm. but again, it's another chapter that's about domesticity uh, and ordinary day to day life mm. in the Jia household more than it is, uh, you know. Whereas some previous chapters have been much more kind of dreamlike and surreal, this is at least on a surface level about ordinary day to day life things that happen in in a rich household in, in, in Qing dynasty era China on a kind of daily basis. Okay, yeah. I was also struck by the, um, the emphasis on the domestic sphere. This chapter is extremely intimate, right? At the same time, there is a touch of the magical, the, the supernatural, in their comparing Jia Baoyu's jade with um, Xue Baochai's 
golden locket, right? Um, yep. And so, as we've seen before, the realistic is sometimes a setting for a, a magical moment. Well, I mean, as you touched on last week, you mentioned one interpretation is that every single chapter of the book is is its own dream, is a dream in itself. I really think that's an interesting perspective and one that we should try to consider with each chapter, you know, is can this be thought of as a dream? What are the dreamlike elements in it? And I mean, I don't want to jump too, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but certainly one thing that struck me about it is there's a section where Jia Baoyu is going to visit Xue Baochai, but that means negotiating his way across quite a large section of, of the mansion. And he desperately doesn't want to run into anyone who's going to, you know, slow him down or, or, or waylay him. Mm-hmm. And that feeling of repeated frustration in trying to reach a certain destination or achieve a certain objective to me is very dreamlike. You know, often in dreams, you're trying to get somewhere or trying to do something. Right. Um, and, and you're unable to do that because of things that just appear like magic, you know, right. Various obstructions. And actually during this process, the, uh, the character for dream and the act of dreaming is referenced a few times. Right. So we learned that, uh, Sir Jung is in is in his little study in the uh, Sudongpo rooms. The original uh, Chinese for that is Meng Pojai, which means Meng is again the character for uh, for dreaming. So he's in the yeah. the, the Sudongpo dream yeah studio. sort of dream chamber absolutely dream chamber yeah. right. And actually, just prior to that, one of these hanger-ons who who's kind of a, a sycophant, he's constantly um, praising Bao Yu for for basically anything he does, right? Mm. And he says to uh, to Bao Yu um, in the Hawks translation, Angelic boy, how seldom one has the pleasure. Is it really you, or is this some delightful dream? And, yeah. and so it really seems to be a property of dreams to, in various ways, to reference the act of dreaming. And so like, dreams are always kind of meta-dreams. Yeah, definitely. And so if this chapter is a dream, we already have two, almost from the outset, we have two references to its uh, dreamlike character. And yet, as you mentioned, the very act of trying to do something but constantly having obstructions arise out of nowhere resonates with my own kind of dream experience. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wanting to run and being unable to, for example, or wanting to pick something up and your your, your, your muscle's not responding. And so uh, before we jump into it, it's kind of related to the act of dreaming. I've really been trying to figure out how to come to terms with the Wuxing system, the five phases. Sometimes it's called the five elements system. And kind of like organizing my reactions to it, my misgivings with it, and the question of how authorial intent interacts with the system, right? Having been reading through Chinese literature for a while, when there is something that is ostensibly superstitious in it, it's easy to kind of be taken aback, to want to distance oneself or distance the author from these systems because they have been in some ways discredited. And we want to, you know, place the author uh, in the best possible light, right? Um, that's, yep. That seems like a, a general a general practice. But at, at the same time, I wonder whether uh, there is a way to treat sort of pre-scientific systems in a way that appreciates their kind of aesthetic qualities without, you know, pandering to things that we know aren't necessarily going to be true, right? Where did this uh, Wuxing five phases kind of idea come from how did you come across it and how did you first kind of consider it to be applicable yeah. to 
Yeah, so Hong Lo Meng. When did I really get Wu Sheng Pilled? Yeah. I would say that I think it was chapter five when we saw the very strong when we were going through the the paintings actually of mm-hmm. um corresponding to all the major uh twelve beauties. And and we yep. saw the painting, especially the one where um Lin Dayu and Shri Bao Chai are together represented, uh, along mm-hmm. with uh Jia Bao Yu. And we had um Dayu was represented as uh, a jade belt hanging from a tree. Right, right. And so the the dai, which in her name means black, I've been displaced onto the character for belt, which is also dai. Belt, which is also dai. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, we see that again in this chapter. The same character reemerges. And that got me thinking about, we'd already been discussing a lot the, the connection between the name jia and the idea of falseness, jia, jada. If we expand out a bit, then we can consider, okay, what about lin dai yu? And so Lin is, of course, uh, like Shulin, referring to wood, yeah, or to wood forests, right? Trees, uh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the character itself is, is literally um, two trees next to each other. And that, that image was also, it also appeared in a few of the poems. And at one point in time, um, I believe it's the, the poem that Hawks translates, um, like a lifetime mistake. Zhong Shen Wu. Yeah, yeah Zhong Shen Wu, where the, uh, there's a covenant between, a covenant between wood and jade is mentioned. And jade, of course, refers to Bao Yu. But the wood in that circumstance refers to Lin Dayu. There's also, from the first chapter, there's the, the issue of her being... In the Hawks translation, she's referred to as, I believe, a crimson flower. Although I believe right, the, yeah. the original was a xian cao, like literally an, like a, an immortal grass. Grass, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is again could be classified along with wood, which is one of the one of the five phases of the Wuxing system. Okay, so so what are the five phases? There, there, there's wood, there's fire, right? There's what? Are the, what are the other ones? I'm I'm gonna kind of go around the circle. I I, I have it loaded up in my computer. So wood creates fire, according to one interpretation. A uh, fire, yep. huo, So so mu huo, Then uh, earth tu. So fire creates earth. Earth creates metal. Jin, which is going to be associated with uh, Shui Bao Chai. Yep. Because she, she's the metal, the precious metal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, exactly. Bao Chai is like a jeweled hair clip, something exactly, like that. Exactly, exactly. Um, but but we'll, see, we'll see even in this chapter, there's this real emphasis on metallic and kind of bejeweled imagery as distinct from jade. And so then metal creates water, which is the final uh, phase. But there's also other associations with that. So there's, there's color association. So wood is usually associated with green, which is Qing again, which is a which is another character that we've really emphasized. Qing being emotion or love or um, yeah. those, those kinds of sentiments. Uh, fire is of course um, red. We could probably see a, a connection there with uh, Feng Lazi. Uh Earth is is yellow. But but also I suppose red. You know the crimson flower you mentioned surely. exactly yeah yeah the crimson flower. And, and also i mean just in the name of the book itself right hong hong lo hong lo mong right the dream of the red chamber uh and earth is yellow we will recall that hawks has uh he's translating red as as golden right and, and it's it's kind of meant to signify kind of the twilight moment when the the sun begins to fall and you can reflect upon mm-hmm. the day, you can reflect upon your life. And so it has this kind yeah. of this golden shimmer to it. And actually, in a yeah, sense, absolutely. gold could be seen as being kind of in between red and yellow in a way. 
Um, there's yeah. also the idea of the um, Hongchen, which is this Buddhist notion of what was that red dust, the red dust, right? But it, again, it's going to be more like a golden dust. And the notion of dust is going to remind us of earth and dirt. And also it might have a little bit of a connotation of, um, of lust or, you know, uh, Huang Se. Uh, so you see how this, like the web is forming and you can just, you can just go on and on and on and on and on. And so I do think there's enough there that I'm increasingly confident that the author is intentionally playing with this, this system. And so the question is, is that good? Is that bad? Does that, does that devalue this work at all? And, and I really want to say no. I, I really want to um, kind of push back against this kind of um, devaluation of the system. And, and the way I want to do that is maybe by uh, thinking about uh, notions of balance, contrast, and interaction, not in a scientific sense, but more in a uh, aesthetical sense, where we have, we have the, the balancing of uh, various elements to create more aesthetical piece of piece of artwork and also i want to talk about the idea of um maybe like a dream aesthetics where if you're if you're viewing the world strictly in terms of a wuxing system you're viewing uh all of its phenomena all, all of your perceptual phenomena as potentially meaningful but in a sense if you're in a dream there there's a real solid possibility that everything really is potentially meaningful and that there really is and so if you take this system and you divorce it from some of its more cruder applications, you can actually uh, find a very um, flexible means for presenting and representing um, ideational spaces and spaces of desire. And so mm -hmm. that's, that's, my, that's my kind of spin on how you can be whooshing pilled without being, <laughs> uh, what were you saying, without in, engaging in like the QAnon of the Qing dynasty? Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Without indulging in like actual conspiratorial raving. I mean, if you want to talk about QAnon, it really has this dreamlike character where, you know, the basic, uh, like all the details are wrong, but all the, the fears and desires are uh, reflective of certain realities, right? Yeah, yeah. So that would be one way of uh, understanding that phenomenon as uh, an obviously false, but a uh, a psychological form that in and of itself is worthy of uh, trying to disentangle. It's a, it's an interesting, it's a, such a strange phenomenon because it's a lot of the, as you say, the fears are founded in things that are not completely baseless. You know, I mean, what do they believe? They believe that basically the world is run by a cabal of uh, billionaire pedophiles, right? Uh, that's that's sort of what they think, isn't it? Right. Basically, that's one of the things they think, and 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 I mean, that does seem kind of faintly laughable on the face of it. But but I guess you know, if you look at someone like Jeffrey Epstein, for example, I mean, that guy was a convicted pedophile, and I mean, he had a private island where he would fly down all of his rich friends, and. One can only speculate what they might have got up to, including people in power. Yeah, absolutely. People in in politics, in business, in you know arts and the media, and one can only speculate what they may have got up to. But certainly, you might well believe that it's pedophilia or things of that nature. 
right? And this becomes for believers in this system where they take a phenomenon and they over-ascribe agency. And what might have been happening in these circumstances is downstream of entirely abstract system of class and exploitation and domination. But when you have these visible forms, there's always the risk that they're going to become kind of what Lacan refers to as like an object petit a, like a, uh, an organizing principle around which your entire universe uh, is constituted, where what's actually happening is this is a very like uh, this is kind of a rarefied form of exploitation that is reflective of more abstract, more generalized, more universalized forms of, mm. of domination and, and oppression and so on and so forth. And so that's always the risk yeah, of engaging with abstract systems as a, you know, a, an individual with emotions and, uh, and desires and, and fears and anxieties. Uh, yeah. I guess that's like the long-winded way of, of saying that. I, I guess the best way to approach this, this piece of literature uh, at times is by uh, embracing the fact that it has been created by somebody and that it's going to reflect that individual's experience but also his his desires his projections i can remember doing you know learning the basics of how to analyze and think about literature growing up and always being very frustrated by you know the kind of classic example is is people who had to study uh the great gatsby in school for example and the teacher would fixate on the fact that gatsby would stare out at this green light uh, and why was it green what was the importance of the color green and you know there are many frustrated teenager will have just said it's just green it didn't mean anything you know Fitzgerald didn't mean anything in particular by having a green light it's just green end of and ultimately the question I suppose of whether Fitzgerald consciously meant anything by having it green rather than any other color is not necessarily what's important because sometimes certainly the author will have consciously constructed a particular you know particular elements of the story to make some kind of point. But as you picked up on, a lot of the time it's it's projection of an internal self that they may not consciously intend. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the time, the reason that they choose characters, this character will do this thing, or this character will say that thing, or this setting will include this one particular element, may be less the result of a conscious you know, construction and more the result of just, yeah, some reflection of their own their inner self or their upbringing or the uh, environment in which they exist. And also a reflection of their tarrying with the universality of human experience. The example of the the green light is really good for us because we've also had so much um, kind of green imagery in this novel, right? And the, the Qing. And part of that, uh, a lot of those, the, the Chinese system is very particularized, right? And so Qing doesn't really have the same, um, the exact same uh, meaning in English as it does in the Chinese of this era. But you can see that there really are some universal um, correlations where it's, it really is going to be universally associated with uh, things like spring and, and life and flourishing and, uh, and maybe also opportunity, uh, whether, you know, in terms of making money. Yep or in terms of finding love. And so even though there is this very, um, each time and place is going to give you a different flavor uh, of experience. The fact that we can read literature from a, a different time and different place in a different language uh, and still kind of interact with it meaningfully is probably mm-hmm. contingent upon this universality 
that is uh, maybe like baked into our bones and to our, our human uh, our human being. And so that's kind of, that's, that's a really great example because yeah, this novel is also, you know, there's also a green beacon that's flashing mm-hmm. interminably. <laughs> so, I mean, the story begins with Bao Yu speaking to his grandmother, grandmother Jia, Jia Mu, explaining why he, Bao Yu, and his new friend Qin Zhong should, should be studying together, basically. So, I mean, Bao Yu's family are very rich. They have their own, you know, special teacher. And uh, Qin Zhong's family, much less wealthy. And so they might not necessarily mix in the same social milieu a lot of the time. Um, and so you can see him, kind. Of, you can kind of imagine, you know, he's, what, at this stage, about 13, 14 years old, kind of very excited, telling his grandma all about his new friend and kind of begging, you know, please, 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 can we... Can he be admitted to the family school kind of thing? And she says, yes, of course, you know, but let me meet him first and see if he's kind of of good character, you know, if he's if he's okay. Anyhow, the, then a couple of the family go off to watch, I guess, a play, you know, to, to, to go see some kind of dramatic entertainment. And um, we don't really know much about kind of what it's about, uh, what happens. Yeah. But I think it's just the framing for Bayou to go off and have a, a kind of a little adventure of his own, right? They come back early because uh, Grandmother Jia is tired. She wants to take a nap. And Bao Yu kind of uses this opportunity to slip off and to, to give Bao Chai a visit. And so this is the dreamlike. Um, he's trying to navigate this, um, this heavily populated, this huge compound in which they live. And there's always going to be people around. And he wants to avoid his father in particular, uh, which is, again, what you'd expect from a dream. Uh, you want to avoid the the figure of authority who's going to prevent you from uh, achieving enjoyment and, and pleasure of various kinds. Uh, and so he tries to kind of sneak off down the you know one back passage or another, but uh, almost immediately he is uh, he encounters two men, Zhang Guang and Shan Pingren, mm. who are in the Hawks translation, they're referred to as literary gentlemen patronized by his father. So, <laughs> so you imagine them as, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of minor scholars. And because Jabayu's father wants to be a kind of patron of the arts, he provides them with presumably lodgings and material support in the form of money or other. They're Clip Springer. You just mentioned the great Gatsby, and there's a, a minor <laughs> character in that named Clip Springer who, who's a hanger-on, but he's good at playing the piano, and, and he has a sense for the literary arts. Yeah, I'm not sure I, if anyone will catch that reference, but oh, yeah. <laughs> I honestly don't remember that character, but, but I, think that that's, I think that's helpful to be able to kind of tie it back. Um, it, Hawks is far too polite, you know. Uh, he says that they're literary gentlemen. Um, yeah. but they're hangers on absolutely uh, I mean the way they're referred to in the Chinese is uh, so means literally under the gate or under the door and means like well is a guest but here is the one that means it can kind of mean like clear but it also conveys a sense of being sort of like rather thin and maybe slightly kind of lacking in substance so calling them sort of like substanceless guests implies that they're they are you know rather worthless in a way you know but perhaps that's slightly unfair but but yeah they're, they're hangers on um okay uh, anyway as you mentioned earlier on uh when they say him they're kind of obsequious in their their way of addressing him um uh, in in the english it's angelic boy and in the chinese it's what a so my 
my Buddha, my Bodhisattva brother. Um, <laughs> so I mean, it's it's kind of a. I mean, yes, obviously, some adults have a a natural way of slightly condescending to children by giving them these very grand names, and <laughs> you know, it can be just just that and nothing more. But you do get the sense that, as we'll see further on in the chapter, people very much toady up to Jiabaoyu because he is, you know, the youngest man of the family. And yeah. despite being a, you know, Shamelessly. a teenager, really. Uh, yeah, despite being, you know, little more than a child, he is accorded a great deal of respect. And I think it's exactly, you know, because they want to get on his good side. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So what happens? What happens next? Well, they, they, Hawk says they prattled on for what seems an age before finally releasing him. And, you know, that, <laughs> that, that's about it. You can kind of imagine it, really, can't you? Um, you know, the Chinese used this Lao Dao La Ban Zhi, which is like, again, yeah, Lao Dao is like, it's an onomatopoeia, really. It's, uh, you know, it just means exactly prattling on, okay. gossiping like on yada, about any yada, old Yada, boxes. yada, yada. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And he manages, he's on the verge of escaping when one of the, the nurses arrives and then starts chatting as well. I'm interested to get your view on this, but there are these, yeah, these characters. The Chinese term is mama, which is um, is a homophone for the term used for mother, but the, the character used is different. And as we discover with, with one of them, Li Mama, she was Baoyu's wet nurse, which, you know, is seems to have been quite a common thing in not just in China, but many parts of the world that aristocratic or more, more kind of, you know, rich noble women wouldn't breastfeed they would have a woman who would breastfeed their children for them. And I, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily understand the cultural reasons for that. And I expect it may be different in different places. But just as a matter of practicality, uh, I understand that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think breastfeeding works in some way as a kind of contraceptive. I think it's more difficult to become, become pregnant while breastfeeding. So for wet nurses themselves, they would you certainly in many places have, you know, families, children of their own. And so continuing to breastfeed was a way of ensuring no new children came along for a bit. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know much about that. It has always struck me as a, a very kind of pronounced form of the commodification of the body. Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So I don't know whether it's... My first impression is negative, that it's exploitative. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know whether the historical records would uh, bear that out or not. It is strange when you think about it. I mean, you're right about the commodification of the body. I mean, I suppose it's less alien to us to think of people providing their labor, uh, whilst we can still recognize it as exploitative in some circumstances. But the idea of not just providing your labor, but actually providing one of your own bodily substances in a kind of employer-employee or servant-master relationship is is quite a strange thing to to really contemplate, isn't it? Yeah, it seems extremely intimate, maybe yeah. overly, kind of overly intimate. So I guess we could, in passing, this is where they mention the uh, the Sudongpo study, or the dream Meng Po Jai, which, again, is, is the dream kind of telling you this is a dream. That's my, that's my yeah, favorite I think so. interpretation. I, I think so, yeah, yeah. So the wet nurse says, Exactly, Lao Ye, uh, Jiabaoyu's father, is is exactly it's in the Meng Po Jai study or or studio, whatever you want to call it, having a nap, having his afternoon nap, which we've seen before. That seems to be a recurring uh, theme. Maybe it's a recurring practice, but we see it again and again. We saw it in the first chapter. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Zhen Shi and he drifts off having his afternoon nap and has this rather amazing dream. 
So in the in the Hawks translation, he refers to this room as the uh, Sudongpo room. Sudongpo being one of the great Chinese poets, I think, of the Song Dynasty, eleventh century. And um, his name, uh, Sudongpo, is literally Su of the East Slope. Uh, it's a very kind of funny name, uh, but I think it's because he was during his life he was he got on the wrong side of the emperor and was exiled. And so I think the name Dongpo was adopted later in life as some kind of reference to that. I, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. But the name of this room that Jiabaiyu's father is in is not literally the Su Dongpo room. It's Meng, as you said, dream, Po, a slope or, or hillside, and Jai, which seems to have a lot of different meanings as a word. It can be literally a vegetarian diet, you know, vegetarian. It can be to study. To or to fast or abstain from food, but it may be a, a kind of pun or homophone on the term jai, which is um, like home or residence. Um, mm. But but anyway, anyway, this is he's in he's in the the dreaming of dreaming of Sudongpo room. Um, so as you as you mentioned, this is very suggestive of of yeah. dreaming generally. Yeah. So it's it's the second dream reference in the in the matter of a few. A few sentences, really. Uh, so, so first he's interrupted by the two hangers-on, and he's, as he's about to leave them, one of the wet nurses shows up, and then he finally escapes. And then he's interrupted by some... He's referred to as the clerk of stores in the Hawks translation. Um, essentially, yeah, w w kind of workmen or, or minor merchants, I guess. Um, and they interrupt him, you know... To to have a chat about um, kind of pay the respects and have a chat about his um, his calligraphy, which they've seen, you know, pasted up around the place. Apparently, they they say they've seen it, but then when uh, when Bao Yu asks specifically, yeah. well, where did you see it? They're like everywhere. Yeah. They, they <laughs> yeah, a any number of places yeah. in the in the English and the Chinese. How do you how do all over the place? Uh, many, many, several places. It's you know, it's uh, yeah. Um, so we think they're just sort of buttering him up, really. It sounds as if they haven't seen it anywhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that they know that he, you know, is is receptive to being complimented on his um, on his calligraphy. And the irony is, we learn later that he he was supposed to do calligraphy today, and he did three characters, and then mm -hmm. immediately quit. And so, got bored, yeah, yeah. Then he got bored it. and stopped. Um, but there's just one other point, which is one of the the group of men. I think there are seven of them in total. One of them pays respect to Bao Yu by kneeling in front of him and then touching his hand to the ground yeah. in a salute, in, in um, the Manchu style. Uh, so, so yeah, yeah. So there's the you know there's it's it's made extremely apparent that there. Is a, a lot of kind of respect accorded to uh, Bao Yu by, you know, most ordinary members of the household and anyone who has anything to do with them. Right. There's a sense that Bao Yu kind of shrugs it off. He doesn't seem to at least openly um, gloat in his power and position. Mm. But at the same time, he's not uh, unaware of it. Yeah. He accepts it. Something as it kind of seems as the natural state of things. So it's not really worth commenting on. And so then, what we say now, he finally makes it to the uh, the pear tree court, the Li Xiang Yuan, yeah. which we, we've mentioned in previous episodes. This is where a number of the, the women of the household have been relocated recently. Is that correct? 
Yes, that sounds right. Leaving only Jia Baoyu and Lin Daiyu with Grandmother Jia. And so this is kind of the, um, I guess this has become a kind of home away from home. Is that a fair characterization? Uh, I think so. I think so. So he, he, he gets there and he says hello to uh, his aunt, Xue, who is the, the mother both of Xue Baochai, but also um, Xue Pan, who we were introduced to, I think, in chapter four as this, you know, rather morally bad character, you know, um, a bit thuggish, a wastrel, you know, really interested only in his own pleasures and, you know, a fairly typical spoilt rich kid. Mm. Anyway, he asks after him, and Aunt Xue responds. She literally says, uh, He is a, a horse without a bridle. He's like a horse without a bridle, basically. You know? So he's um, just, you can imagine, wildly charging around all over the place. So he's not there at the moment, and we don't really know around. where he yeah. is. He's never around, yeah. He's always off you know, pursuing his own, his own pleasures. So, by contrast... You know, Balchai is 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 uh, at home, a picture of kind of decency and simplicity, and 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 you know, other good good virtue or Shaoshun of of filial piety as well. Exactly, exactly. And of course, we learned recently that she was feeling ill. We we learned in the last chapter, right? And Bao Yu sent over a few maids to inquire after her, but this will be his first trip to visit her yep. um, since learning of her illness. Right, and she's doing a lot better already. So he 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 checks in on her, and um, you know he finds her in one of the inner chambers, sitting atop a, a kang, which is this kind of you know brick raised mm-hmm. brick kind of bed, um, and you kind of build a you build a fire underneath it so that you know people sitting on top feel nice and warm. There is one thing that I wanted to ask you a view on, which is you know when he's going in to see her, he passes from one room to another and dividing the two is is an old it's referred to as uh banjilda literally half old there's an old red curtain basically dividing the two dividing the two rooms and and it's that that he kind of pulls pulls aside and i just think it's interesting because it's you wouldn't necessarily comment on it unless it had some some sort of significance i don't know what it is exactly but just for me it adds to the dreamlike quality of the of the passage, the drawing aside the curtain somehow. Right, it's like a, it's like a David Lynch. Uh, you're going from one room to another. You're in the red. You're in the uh, the Black Lodge. I don't know. I don't know if you know that reference. <laughs> um, and actually, yeah. her clothing is also referred to as um, actually here it is. It's a banxin. Oh yeah, banxin bujiao. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in this case, it's literally half new, not old, but. The idea being that this isn't, you know, finery at all. These are they're kind of ordinary workaday, slightly worn clothes, you know. In the poem describing uh, Baochai in a moment, that is kind of the emphasis. That that seems to be her aesthetic. Is she's going for uh, un uh, ostentatious, or what, what's the word for that? <laughs> yeah, um, I know what you mean. Kind of, it's very unpretentious, definitely. Unpretentious. Um, that's better. Yeah. Okay. I mean, just reading reading through the the kind of description, we touched on the 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 half new old bit, and then there is this yeah. There's the, there's a whole there's a whole kind of full poem there, isn't there? Um, describing her appearance. Do you do we want to talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, let's let's do that because this is our first time, I think, really getting a sense for Shri Bajai. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and here we are. She's kind of in her element. So this is a really good way to to get a sense for her um, her personality, her her aura, her essence. And so maybe we could talk about. Yeah, she she's wearing a. a, a I'm, I'm reading off the, the Hawks translation now. She's wearing a simple bun without any kind of ornament. Right. So yep. she's unadorned. All of her clothing is rather well worn. She's wearing a mulberry colored sleeveless jacket. And then there is this poem, right? And we should probably read uh, the Hawks' rendering of it, but also maybe talk about some of the literal meaning that, that uh, is hidden behind it. Just for a sort of like modern comparison, this is she's at home in a hoodie and sweatpants, basically. That's that's kind of what that's kind of what she's wearing, right? You know, maybe it's it's so hard to compare because even the I mean, everything in this is so uh, ornate. I'm sure. By our standards, she was incredibly well made up, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's still wearing, you know, a magical locket. It, and it's still, the, the sleeveless jacket has a, a pattern with gold and silver thread. Mm. And so it, it really is a, a very much a, a relative um, yeah. affair. Yeah, she's, she's unadorned in relative terms. Okay, so, so, so in the poem, do you want to read the, the Hawks translation for us and then we can dive into the Chinese? Okay, yeah. Do you want to read it? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. So... So Hawke says, the way he writes it is from Baoyu's perspective. He saw no hint of luxury or show, only a chaste, refined sobriety. To some, her studied taciturnity might seem to savor of duplicity, but she herself saw in conformity the means of guarding her simplicity. We were talking about this before, you know, like he's, he's gone for rhyming uh, in a big way, even though the the original doesn't really rhyme. I mean, the original is—it's meter—is almost not exactly a poem. Uh, I mean, I, I, it is, I suppose, but it doesn't announce itself as such in the same way. It's just kind of folded into the text. Yeah, and so I would also kind of want to emphasize that um, there are some really like important visual and literal images that aren't. I guess Hawks really emphasizes the abstract qualities that emerge from what in the original is actually a very concrete image, right? And so we learned that one line that I really liked was um, So her her lips were un... Uh, she's not wearing lipstick, but her lips are still red, right? Yeah. So that, that's a kind of a form of... Uh, the idea is she has a kind of natural beauty. She was also des- described in previous chapters as being a bit more robust in terms of physical physical appearance. The contrast is with Lindayu, who has a kind of thin but almost sickly constitution. Yeah, she's right. waif-like, isn't she? Um, okay, yeah. I, there, there's another line that goes with the one you just mentioned about the, the lips. So it, it's chun bu dian er hong, mei bu hua er cui. So it's, it's a matching form. You know, the, the two lines are completely parallel in structure, and their meaning is very closely associated. Right. So... So Chuan's lips, as you said, they're red without being adorned, and yes. her eyebrows without being painted, nonetheless, sway, which is it's a word kind of used to describe kind of lustrous jade, I think. Right, uh, right. Which is a really interesting choice. And and my like my Uxing brain was like going crazy there because it's like, whoa, like what she has jade uh, eyebrows. It seems unusual, but yeah. um but interesting, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is, it has like a, a meaning of sort of greenness as well. 
uh, which I guess kind of ties it back to. Or maybe just of liveliness. Um, yeah. Maybe considering Ching as like, in English you could say maybe verdant, right? Where it yeah. isn't, Ching almost doesn't become a, a color, it becomes a a descriptor of life, right? Yeah, yeah, of things that are green and, you know, lively. Her eyebrows are just maybe bright. You could say bright eyebrows, right? I think that, that would be natural. And they also mentioned her, uh, excuse me, uh, her, her face is like a, a silver basin or a silver yeah. flower pot. Yeah. Which is, again, uh, again these images of, of flowers and life and are very suggestive, I thought. Yeah. Um, and none of that comes across in the Hawks translation. So I, I kind of wanted to um, emphasize it. Yeah. And, and then by contrast, her eyes are like water almonds. They, I mean, we often hear about people talk about uh, like almond eyes in terms of the shape, and I think maybe that's partly what Sal was getting at here. Maybe, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think he's also implying a sort of like like a glistening or sheen like kind of quality, you know? I think so. Yeah, I really enjoyed this passage. I it gives you um, a, a sense. We want to think of her simply as you know, like the good girl or what have you. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's more to her character than that. There, there is a vivaciousness maybe is that yeah yeah there's one bit that i also thought kind of stood out quite well which is just uh you know coming up which is han yan gua yu ren wei zhuang yu so rarely speak rarely speak literally is what those characters mean you know few were implying that she kind of keeps her thoughts to herself she's not mm -hmm. kind of constantly chattering she's a she's a you know a girl of relatively few words taciturn taciturn exactly and then the next session, Ren Wei, Zhuang Yu, people said or people called it a kind of fake or false stupidity. So the fact that she is taciturn, that she doesn't really speak much, people might take to be like a false modesty or a false, a kind of pretense, I suppose. But as the poem kind of goes on, it's more of a way of, I suppose, her... Humility, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Zhu Yun which means like to, to remain honest or kind of pure. So they see each other, they you know have a chat about um, how she's feeling better. Briefly, Bayou asks if he can try one of these cold fragrance pills that she mentioned in the last chapter, which you'll remember are, are a kind of medicine that was prescribed for her by a, a Taoist monk. And it has an utterly ridiculous um, list of ingredients and, and method for making it. In accordance with the Wuxing method, another example of how, on one hand, you can be a realist author and describe these phenomena because they really are an element of your social reality. Yeah. But at the same time, my interpretation is that uh, the author is trying to go beyond that to to kind of repurpose these the symbolic system toward a new like artistic vision. It's really interesting that uh, Bao Yu, he recognizes the aroma of the pills. I think the implication is that he recognizes it from the dream, maybe. Yeah, 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 quite possibly. Because at one point in time, he was exposed to a, a special incense that yeah. was derived from the essence of all flowers or something like that. Yeah, you're right. Many different flowers and buds and things all kind of mixed together. And so I, I think you were supposed to connect those two uh, elements of the story. I think so, yeah. And and while they're talking, um, she, uh, Xue Baochai, sees his his jade, which, which as we touched on before, is is quite like a complex symbolic object. 
I mean, on one level, it's possibly a penis metaphor <laughs> because there's an early scene. The first time we meet Bao Yu, he gets angry that he has one and all the girls don't have one. And this makes him different from them in some way that he doesn't like. But but it's also, I, I suppose it does kind of work on some levels that because you can see that he also feels the weight of being the male heir, which obviously comes from his having a penis as well. But at the same time, it, it's much more broad than that. It's not. It's not quite as kind of... It's not necessarily as crude, I suppose. Although we're about to see in this scene that he's going to learn that although girls uh, don't have jades per se, uh, they yep. might have golden lockets. And so this scene, Indeed. if you want to take it to that kind of psychoanalytic level, has yep. a real uh, sense of, you know, you show me yours and I'll show you mine. You know, this primordial uh, moment of youth, if you will. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean... <laughs> Hawks in the translation does use the term veined to describe the appearance of the jade. Oh, um, wow. I, I hadn't picked which, up on that. Which, which doesn't actually, I don't think it comes out in the, um, in the Chinese. So I think it's something that, you know, it's perhaps he has sort of inserted. But, but anyway, uh, there is then a, a quite, I think, quite a good description of the, the jade itself um, uh, in, in another poem that I think we could maybe, maybe talk about. <laughs> 